he says um, on page 109, <clears throat> Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. And I really don't even think that needs commenting on. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And this is going to be an episode moving on to Chapter 3 of The Divine Conspiracy. Dan and I have recorded a number of episodes. We talked for hours about this chapter. This is just Part 1. I'm thinking there will be maybe two parts, maybe three parts to this, depending on how I want to splice it up here. Again, I've taken bits of a number of conversations we've had and shortened them here. So I hope you guys are finding that easy to follow and that it is breaking it down for you in a way that is very understandable. And this chapter uh, is titled, What Jesus Knew, Our God-Bathed World. So Willard's main point in this thesis, in this chapter, the thesis of it is that in order to consider to be students of Jesus, we must see the world the way he saw it, and he saw the world as bathed with the presence of God. And that's what we begin to talk about here, and we'll talk about much more next week. We talk about God coming in a body, the incarnation, how that idea is not exactly a new one, to Christianity, how it is very much can be traced in Judaism, and we talk about what it means for us to have a Christian vision of the world and not just a secular, modern vision of the world. As always, thank you guys very much for listening. There'll be more content to come, and I'm headed to England this week, so I'm going to try and do some editing beforehand. If not, maybe edit there, and, but I probably won't be able to post any more until I get back. So, I'll see you on the other side. So, we recently have been talking about the gospel, um, thinking about different, um, different ways in which the gospel can operate or different consequences of the gospel is one of the ways we've been talking about it. So there's the gospel and there's consequences of the gospel. Do we make those things central? Um, gospels of sin management um, in specifically chapter two of the divine conspiracy. Now we're moving into chapter three. Um, one of the biggest things that we talked about towards the end of chapter two was do we treat Jesus seriously as though he's um, someone to take seriously, someone to listen to and to actually respond to with action and intention with everything that we have. Uh, so <clears throat> on that note, I'm going to read a little bit from chapter three of the Divine Conspiracy. Um, <clears throat> this is page 104. Um, I'm going to start actually two paragraphs before where I told you I was going to. Okay. So if you could skip back. Sorry. Oh, bless you. Go ahead. Okay. So the last full paragraph on that page. Okay. The real world has little room for a God of sparrows and children. 
To it, Jesus can only seem otherworldly. A good-hearted person out of touch with reality. Yes, it must be admitted that he is influential, but only because he affirms what weak-minded and faint-hearted individuals fantasize in the face of a brutal world. He is like a cheerleader who, who continues to shout, we are going to win, though the score is 98 to 3 against us in the last minutes of the game. When this cheerleading approach to the real world triumphs among those who profess Christ, they may then have faith in faith, but will have little faith in God. For God and his world are just not real to them. They may believe in believing, but not be able to rely on God. Like many in our current culture who love love, but in practice are unable to love real people. They may believe in prayer, think it quite a good thing, but be unable to pray believing, and so we rarely, if ever, pray at all. I personally have become convinced that many people who believe in Jesus do not actually believe in God. By saying this, I do not mean to condemn anyone, but to cast light on why the lives of professed believers go on as they do and often quite contrary even to what they sincerely intend. We so often, and I think that this problem that he's talking about here, not taking Jesus seriously, seeing him as otherworldly or only for the weak-minded and faint-hearted individual who can't deal with the way things really are, <clears throat> because we see him that way, we don't actually take his words seriously and our lives cannot be transformed by them. And that I see is a fundamental problem. Fundamental problem. Any comments on that before I read the next? Yeah, man, he's just giving advice. Yeah. That's how it's, that's, that's how it's seen. That's how it's talked about. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so this, this next thing I'm going to read is just one sentence. It's on the last page of chapter three. So we're kind of starting at the end of chapter three, and then we're going to go back. But I think this is also kind of where he ends with chapter two a little bit. So I think it's a nice um, segue. But he says um, on page 109, <clears throat> Jesus is Lord can mean little in practice for anyone who has to hesitate before saying Jesus is smart. And I really don't even think that needs commenting on. I until, think until a few years, I'll put it this way, until a few years ago, I never heard in church any pastor or teacher proclaim, like, read a passage, exegete it, and have us be in awe of how wise, cunning, smart Jesus is. Wise as serpents and um, and gentle as doves. Right there. <clears throat> right there. So that's 
where we came from with the last episode, right? I gave the example of Jesus as a good teacher with the parable of the Good Samaritan, all that stuff. Now we're going to talk about God existing in our world. We're going to talk about this in a multiple of ways, um, but the title of chapter three is What Jesus Knew, Our God-Bathed World. <clears throat> so I'm going to read the, the first paragraph of the chapter. Um, the heading here is Revisioning God and His World. Um, are you getting it pulled up? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'll pull off. Go ahead. All right. So Jesus' good news about the kingdom, so the gospel, can be an effective guide for our lives only if we share his view of the world in which we live. To his eyes, this is a God-bathed and God-permeated world. It is a world filled with glorious reality where every competent, uh, where component, every component, sorry, Wow, dyslexic. Actually am. Um, where every component is within the range of God's direct knowledge and control. Though he obviously permits some of it for good reason to be for a while otherwise than he wishes, it is a world that is inconceivably beautiful and good because of God and because of and because God is always in it. It is a world in which God is continually at play and over which he constantly rejoices. Until our thoughts of God have found every visible thing and event glorious within his presence, the word of Jesus has not yet fully seized us. If we don't see this world as God's, and we don't see God as being present with us in it. Jesus' words won't mean anything to us. And Willard acknowledges the world is obviously not within God's perfect will, which is why I think it's so important to have the understanding that God practices self-control, right? And then we talked about that with justification a while back. But at the same time, we so often see the physical and the spiritual as broken apart. Earth and heaven, human and divine. And there's no way that these things can ever touch. But we also think they touch in Jesus. And I think if we don't see them touching in other ways, in the world itself, we miss what Jesus is actually saying. And that's what Willard is arguing for. When I interviewed Peter Greenspan, interviewed, when I had him tell his story, he said that when he read um, The Last Temptation, it prompted in him a question, one that he had never asked before. He knew that man couldn't become God. That's clear. But he'd never asked the question, can God become man? Because that book deals with the humanity of Jesus in many different ways and many 
some blasphemous ways. You could interpret it that way. I think it's begging an interesting question um, regardless. Uh, but here's the thing. This isn't new to Christianity. This God interacting with humanity, this God even becoming human, God being in the world is ancient. It's old. It's the way it's always been seen to be. And so Christianity doesn't have an exclusive claim, as well as you read earlier, on this idea, which could scare a lot of people. But I'll just repeat what I've said for weeks now. Why would we expect it to be any other way? And so I think our problem is that because we feel like as Christians, we have this exclusive claim on that reality, which in some sense, In, in some sense, the truth of Jesus is unique, but it's not unexpected. So I'm not trying to say that Jesus isn't unique. All I'm saying is that many times Christians will say, and Christians will get demeaned because we believe that God became a man to yeah, this is how it's always been thought of. Well, and um, I was listening to a talk that Peterson did recently. He talks about how that's actually one of the strengths of Christianity. And I, I might have actually brought this up recently. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think it, I think it is, right? Because it makes the, the transcendent particular. And I think that's so beautiful. Um, and we probably shouldn't linger too long here because I have a whole long yeah. string of quotes that but we're going to read to prove this point. But that's all I want to say is that it's <clears throat> it's not original to us in Christianity, this no. idea of God interacting with the world. And even more than that, if Jesus sees him as bringing the kingdom of God to earth, as ushering in this thing, then wouldn't that affect the way the world is and shouldn't those who are listening to him be able to grasp what he's saying what does he say all the time to the pharisees and the scribes haven't you read dude these guys had the bible memorized what are you talking about How much of your Bible have you memorized? How much have I memorized? Well, not a lot. Not compared to them. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I just finished reading um, Richard Hayes' book, Echoes of Scripture and the Gospels, which I've talked about plenty. Um, at one point, at some point in the future, I think we should do an episode on at least the introduction and conclusions from that book. Yeah. Um, because... 
there's a lot of dicey stuff in the middle that's very heady that I enjoyed, but it would be a lot to, to bring to bear. But one of the biggest points he makes, and the point that I'd want to make in that episode, is that the Gospels present a high Christology. They all yeah. do, not just John, as a lot of scholars like to pretend, and that this wasn't something that was necessarily out of the ordinary. And I finished that book the day after I finished the book that we're going to read later for a lot of this conversation. And reading them together did a bunch of beautiful things because it showed me that this idea of an incarnate divinity, Yahweh incarnate in some way, isn't outside the realm of Orthodox Judaism of the first century. And let, let me say it this way. I said, I said it this way earlier, and this is a better way to say it. Not only do we as Christians feel like it's our unique, you know, signifier, Jesus. Well, sure, fair enough. Um, but we think that that happening is unique when it's been going on in the Old Testament for a long time. And we think that God interacting with us as human beings in some strange way is abnormal and so i want to dispel that on that let me read this next thing from willard because i think this is great so it's from the section heaven invading human space on page 79 um, <clears throat> and i'll just read the first few paragraphs abraham of course leads the way hagar his outcast concubine turned away from her desperate child because she could not stand to watch him die of thirst in the desert. But God heard the voice of the lad and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, Hagar, what is wrong? Don't be afraid. For God has heard the voice of the boy there and God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Some years later, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, don't touch the boy. In such passages, heaven is never thought of as far away. In the clouds, perhaps, or by the moon, it is always right here at hand. These are just a few of the constant interactions of heaven with God's people in the Old Testament. They show us that heaven is here and God is here because God and his spiritual agents act here and are constantly available here. God is all too present in the world, in the Old Testament, especially, let's say, for the likes of um, Pharaoh. The, the insistence that, and the bifurcation of the spiritual and the physical, the insistence that those two things have to remain separate is in reality a modern one, not a biblical one. So the world, okay. Let's do this. Could This is a lot to ask of you. Can you, uh, here, I'll put it, I'll put it as a note in the in the dock 
We all know about simulations, we think. Moreover, we have heard of psychological projection and our heads are full of pseudoscientific views that reject a spiritual world and insist that space is, is empty and matter the only reality. So we are prepared to treat all of this long historical record as a matter of visions that are only imagination or as outright delusions not as prescriptions of reality. And we slump back into those materialistic mythologies of our culture that, we, uh, that are automatically imparted to us by normal life as what everyone knows. As I said in this episode, what does this view of the world tell us that we think the world is? Only matter. Okay, skip ahead to 1351. There's another still image. What does this tell you about the Egyptian view of the world? It is permeated with the gods. It is not purely matter. Okay, skip ahead to 1607. There's another still image. So what is the world? It is permeated with God in his presence. <clears throat> so here's the question. Do you believe that? Or is it only matter? Is it just the globe? After all, he does say, um, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. And we can see that as him, you know, sitting on that yellow part and his legs dangling over, uh, over the green part down below in this picture, or we can see that as God saying, I'm present in both and I'm active in both. Both of these are my spaces. And in fact, as we'll get into in a little bit with, we're going back to who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, both God lived in Eden with Adam and Eve. And then obviously chapter three happens and the relationship between God and God's people is broken. The rest of the biblical story is about God trying to dwell with us in a garden again. And our repeated failures that break every attempt God makes at that. Until ultimately, it's remade it's remade and it's remade through death and resurrection. That's the Bible.